0: Welcome to Verified RX, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Visient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Biosimilars have been around in the U.S. since Zarzio was approved by the FDA in 2015, and the vernacular can get confusing. Here to shed some light on the topic and bring us back to the basics is Dr. Shannon Smallwood, senior pharmacy executive and my Visient colleague. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence, and your program host. Welcome back to the podcast, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. Define a biosimilar for us.
1: Gretchen, let's actually start with a biologic. Sure. A biologic is a medical therapy derived from a living organism. It was developed on its own as an original licensed reference product, and it's approved by the FDA through what we call the BLA, or the Biologics License Application Pathway. Alternatively, a biosimilar is a copy of that already authorized biologic, and it has demonstrated high similarity in physiochemical characteristics, efficacy, safety, all based on a very comprehensive comparability data process. There are very small differences between it, the biosimilar, and the reference product, and FDA approval follows an official abbreviated process.
0: Thanks for those definitions. How does this compare to a generic medication? Generics
1: are exact structural replications of their original molecule. Because biologic agents are so large comparatively, a copy really is often not exactly the same. The site of action can be exactly the same, but the whole molecule itself is going to have some variations. Even a reference product, in fact, has slight variations from lot to lot. Good to
0: know. What about the term Bio better? How is that used?
1: Now, BioBetter is not an official FDA classification or an approval process. Instead, it's really a newer term. I almost consider it marketing. It really describes a biologic based on what we already know about another existing biologic product. It's not similar in structure, but it may serve to treat in the same therapeutic area. It could provide a clinically relevant improvement in safety, efficacy, tolerability, or reduced immunogenicity. Or it may provide a new delivery method, like converting an IV to a subcutaneous product to save time, money, or improve quality of life for the patient that's receiving it. The BioBetter term mostly helps providers group that new agent into what therapeutic class it should be in, so they can better understand it as it launches.
0: Tell us more about the history of biosimilars and how pharmacies have had to adjust since their beginning. The field of
1: biosimilars has evolved significantly from the initial product launches in 2015. Sarcio was the first one. That's a filgrastim. So filgrastim and epoetin; those are both supportive care medications. Pharmacies were able to continue with what I consider our normal formulary processes. We worked with providers to recognize these as equivalent medications, and then we would choose the one with the lowest pricing, convert everybody over to that product, and receive savings as we moved products. In 2016, we saw the first infliximab biosimilar, and with that, entered the outpatient space. So that was very different. Infliximab biosimilars were harder to get going, and honestly, we still do not see conversion rates as high as other molecules. So that was a very clinical conversation. That's really how it started. Are biosimilars going to perform as well in patients? Could we convince providers of their similarity to initiate moving a patient that's maybe stable on that reference product over to a biosimilar? Pharmacy formulary managers likely remember these conversations very vividly. Further, with the infliximabs and then the pegfilgrastims, which launched in 2018, we encountered that barrier of payer coverage. Pharmacies could no longer just pick that single lowest cost item, move 100% of product over to it, as maybe they would receive zero reimbursement from a third-party payer in the outpatient space. Also, it was a safety risk to have several versions of that product, several versions of that same molecule sitting on the shelf and listed in your EMR. That makes sense. As therapeutic oncology biosimilars, the Bevacizumabs, the Rituximabs, and the Trastuzumabs launched in 2019 and 2020. That issue of payer coverage really only loomed larger. Some suppliers were able to capture exclusive payer agreements, even if only for a short time. This meant that pharmacies had to both know that they needed to use a specific product and turn around and provide that product based on what the payer wanted some decided that they would just stay with the reference product and not work on biosimilar conversions because they were still in that single formulary mindset. If you couldn't move 100%, then let's stay where we can stay 100%. Other programs, however, started a really challenging work and an evolution in the pharmacy space to figure out a way to optimize based on those payer barriers. They developed what I call a payer-responsive model.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the payer-responsive model.
1: Essentially, a payer-responsive model allows the pharmacy or the hospital system to drive as much of their use to a preferred biosimilar agent that results in fewer products being stocked and higher revenues by optimizing the margin or that cost versus reimbursement ratio. Payer-responsive models can vary by location. Some are very robust. Some are very simple. But the main idea is that we now know that the pharmacy team has to be involved in them. During this time, if that wasn't enough, we saw insulin biosimilars launched, including the first interchangeable biosimilar. So another term that we added to the mix. Interchangeable is an official designation granted by the FDA when an agent meets additional requirements outlined by the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. In theory, interchangeable biosimilars are supposed to have a lower barrier for conversion as pharmacies should be able to switch products more fluidly between that and the reference product. But honestly, it still remains to be seen if it truly carries much of a benefit. Some states have rules that maybe make conversions easier to handle if the product is FDA approved as interchangeable. But when we're in the outpatient space and we're already dealing with those payer barriers, The pairs are largely covering based on the NDC, not the molecule as a whole. So we'll see what happens with interchangeability.
0: Well, thank you for that history. It's amazing to me that the challenging aspect of this remains constant, but what is challenging us is dynamic and seems to be different every year.
1: It's absolutely true. We've seen the programs that are able to lean in and build and grow really driving the market
0: here. What do you want our frontline pharmacy staff to know about biosimilars? The most
1: important thing to understand in this space, because we as pharmacists have been with it from the beginning, is that we've largely moved from a clinical conversation to an operational conversation. Thankfully, through the hard work of all of the programs that have evaluated and promoted biosimilar conversions over what feels like forever, but is only seven years or so, physicians, patients, and other providers largely accept biosimilars will be as effective as the reference product. We don't have to spend that additional time and energy leaning into those physician or provider conversations to convince them that biosimilars are similar. This idea of moving from clinical to operational has been further supported by various clinical guidelines and professional organization statements that support biosimilar use. For example, we saw the use of oncology treatment biosimilars increase after the NCCN or the National Comprehensive Cancer Network released a white paper titled operationalizing the safe and efficient use of biosimilars. They were all on board. They just wanted to make sure that we did it in a safe and effective manner
0: to limit patient risk. We'll make sure to link to those resources you mentioned in the show notes of today's episode. So Shannon, what sort of things are you watching in the next year? The next 12 months are going to bring further changes, I think, just along the same
1: trajectory. We're going to enter new spaces with the launch of Adalimumab Biosimilars in January, expanding the site of care into retail and dive fully into the world of interchangeability. Maybe we'll see if interchangeability provides some additional benefits and takes hold. I suspect we'll also hear more about the newly launched retinal therapy biosimilars. What I truly believe, though, is that the hospitals that have been able to lean in and build that prior authorization program with pharmacy involvement or some other payer responsive model to optimize the use of biosimilars within each molecule, they're the ones who are going to be able to optimally benefit as each of these new agents launch they will be able to identify which agents have the financial opportunities to be able to prioritize how, when, or even if they engage in this space. Well,
0: it's a lot to keep track of and we will look forward to your take on this in the future. So I hope you'll come back and speak to us. Thank you so much for joining us here today to share your expertise and perspectives. I'm so glad you could be here. Thanks so much, Gretchen, for having me. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.